Welcome to the Real Leaders of Net Zero on The Bid. I'm your host, Mark Weedman. In this mini-series, we're learning from the companies and business leaders at the forefront of the transition to a net zero economy. Our first two episodes focused on wind power and technology. Today, we're talking about utilities, the energy needed to power and heat our homes, businesses, communities, and cities. Joining me is Catherine McGregor, CEO of Engie, a leading global utility based in France. Engie provides electricity to 27 countries in Europe and 48 countries worldwide. Engie has been in the energy business since the Industrial Revolution. They've seen energy sources shift from coal to oil to natural gas and now to renewables. They've put carbon neutrality at the core of their business strategy, even their reason for existence. The company's roots trace back to the Universal Suez Canal Company back in 1858 to build the Suez Canal. That transformed the shipping industry and has been a vital part of global trade ever since. As we now move to a low-carbon economy, how will NG help transform the utility sector next? Catherine McGregor, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Why don't we start with, tell us about NG. Thank you for the question. So NG, first, who are we? We are an energy utility focusing on renewables, so renewable energy, that means electricity, but also gas, as well as energy infrastructure to support our customers' decarbonization. We like to think ourselves as the one who built the energy system for tomorrow. One thing that is very vivid at NG is we have a written purpose that is a huge motivation for our employees, which is to accelerate the energy transition towards a carbon neutral economy. And that purpose is not just buzzwords written somewhere. It's something that makes people tick every day and actually drives a lot of the strategic choices that we made as a company in order to focus on less stuff, less different activities, more aligned to our purpose. The transition to a low-carbon economy, which is the purpose of the whole enterprise of NG, what are the main areas where you're driving that mission? Two things. One, which is around growing our renewable portfolio. So that's renewable electricity. So for that, it's very simple. We have to be good. We have to be best in class. We have to have a operational excellence. We have to be in the right countries. We have to have the right competency and we have to have the right ambition. So for that, we have set ourselves an ambition of 50 gigawatt to 2025 and 80 gigawatt to 2030. Today, we're at 34, so we are really working hard. And of course, as we develop renewable electricity capacity, we are helping to change the mix of energy production to a low-carbon economy. So that's one key access. Second key access is working with our customers, finding solutions to decarbonize their own operations. And this is, by example, working with plants management to take over and decarbonize their utilities, to put solar panels on their roof, and to help them being also more energy efficient. So that is a second business that we are pushing hard, which has a massive impact on our customers and therefore on the overall economy. Another aspect of our actions is on the gas side. As you know, we have an origin in gas. We used to be Gas de France. 
we continue to be convinced that gas is going to be very important in the future energy mix. But of course, you have to decarbonize this gas. And this is really exciting for us because we are working on biomethane solutions, but also, of course, on hydrogen, which is a bit the ultimate decarbonized gas, which is going to be a very important role. I want to be complete and mention the fact that, of course, on ourselves, we are also very demanding and we have set ourselves the goal to be at carbon neutrality by 2045 on all scopes. And so for this, of course, we have a uh, very strict roadmap of decarbonizing our own operation, but also working with our suppliers and also even from a gas sales standpoint to make sure that we reach that neutrality. Let me try to interpret what you're saying to be very specific. You're saying by 2045 that you will have a zero carbon footprint, including through how your customers use your products. How are you going to get there, Catherine? It is all about decarbonizing the gas. And today we have line of sight for biomethane, potentially emethane, which is a derivative of hydrogen, and of course, green hydrogen, which is the ultimate zero carbon gas. And we are seeing, we have line of sight for gas to be a combination of these three components, and that will allow us to get to carbon neutrality. You talked about biomethane. What's biomethane? Biomethane is actually the same molecule as natural gas, which is fantastic. Why? Because you can use biomethane in existing infrastructure. You make it by using waste, whether it's agriculture waste, industrial waste, of food industry waste, and you put it in a big container at a certain pressure and temperature, but nothing too stringent. And after some time, you get biomethane. And that gas, you can inject it back directly to your network. And this is really fantastic because obviously, it's a very locally produced gas, which, you know, from an economy standpoint and impact on your local ecosystem is interesting when it is well-managed. It has obviously to be well-managed. And then you inject it, and then you can reuse it exactly as you are natural gas today, which frankly, from a cost standpoint, because one of the key things for the energy transition is cost. So as much as we can reuse existing infrastructure, we will be winning. And biomethane allows you to do that. And green hydrogen, what's that? Green hydrogen, you need green electricity, low carbon electricity, and then you need electrolyzer and you need water. Electrolyzer is a technology, you know, it has several, obviously, manufacturers of that. And from that process, you get green hydrogen, which is a gas. And green hydrogen has many, many, many potential applications. It is very versatile. It is today, apparently, the only credible solution to decarbonize hard to abate industries as well as heavy transportation. Hard to abate industries, heavy transportation. Why is green hydrogen the only long-term credible solution? Because the power that you need in the processes of these industries or for this heavy transportation is such that seriously difficult to envisage an electricity-based only solution whether it's freight, rail transport, heavy rail transport, whether it's heavy industry, very, very difficult. If you look at, for example, the steel industries, 
what they are looking at is obviously moving away from coal and from furnaces to a process which is called DRI, which will rely on gas. First, they will use normal gas and then they will move to hydrogen as their processes mature. So hydrogen seems to be really the solution that is going to be enabling some of the last CO2 emitters to decarbonize. Maybe one point also to put things back in perspective is H2 is a gas and a gas has unique properties. It can be stored and it can be transported. And it's very important when you think about electricity. Electricity today is very, very difficult to store. You can store it short term, but very, very difficult to store electricity across several months or through a season. So this is why, you know, when you look at green hydrogen, it does work really well as a very viable solution when obviously we get the economics right, which is still a challenge. So hydrogen solves two problems. One is long-term storage of energy, but the second is also the application of intense energy in a specific place, which is necessary for heavy transport as well as industry. You've talked about electrification as well. Yeah. For NG, is electrification a threat or an objective? Oh, no, we love electrification. We have a capacity of 100 gigawatts of electricity production. We are electricity producer today, so we welcome electricity. What we are convinced about is the fact that electricity will not be the only solution. And we are pushing and advocating a very balanced mix for the energy transition, an energy mix that will be diversified, that obviously will rely a lot on electricity, but will be complemented by gas because gas can be stored, can be transported. And we really feel that, you know, a scenario where you would, you know, just imagine two seconds that everything, everything, everything gets electrified. You need to have an infrastructure on electricity that is able to absorb your peak demand and that would require absolutely massive, massive, massive investment in the electricity infrastructures in our country, which are already quite mature. And frankly, the cost of that, in my mind, would be unbearable. The cost of the energy transition mark is something that we should be obsessed about. Because if we get it wrong, there will be such a pushback and a backlash from societies that we might actually have to go backwards, which would be dramatic. So... At Engie, we have this really strong sense of responsibility to find the soft spot of obviously accelerating the energy transition, but making sure we keep its cost bearable for states, societies, and economy. Let's talk more about what happens if the costs get out of control, if they rise too quickly for societies to bear. Europe had a challenge last summer into early autumn with energy and electricity prices rising. What do you think the solution is? How do we manage that transition so that we don't step backwards and give up on the transition to a low-carbon economy because it's just too costly, especially for people who have less wealth? First of all, renewable capacities widely deployed allows access to fairly low-cost electricity. So I would say massive deployment of renewables. Of course, you have to manage the intermittency of the renewables, so you need to make sure you have some flexible assets that complement the intermittency of renewables. But for me, as much renewables as you can deploy, you're going to have some low-cost electricity there, and you complement it with some flexible components that play their role whenever there is absolutely no wind or no sun. And so it's really 
thinking about the energy system to be as resilient as possible, but obviously capitalizing on the low cost of the renewable electricity. That is really a key component. And then the second is pragmatism to make sure that you don't imagine a world that doesn't have a history and therefore reuse as much as possible existing infrastructure. And here the balance electricity and gas is really, really important. And then the third point, it's softer. It's about also how to get a better social acceptance of these new projects. Because every time you do new projects, you have pushback. So we need to obviously, and this is something we think a lot about, is how do we engage with local stakeholders? How do we really get to understanding the issues that such or such projects could be facing from an acceptability standpoint? Taking into account, of course, all aspects, including biodiversity. And this is this responsibility we have as an industry player is to really be exemplary in the way we deploy this project because otherwise could be pushed back and then we are stuck, can't develop the renewable capacity and then, frankly, the costs could be crazy. What do you say to critics who say, you're making me as a gas user pay for this transition? I can't afford it. My income has not been rising. And these climate problems that you're talking about are in the distant future and why is that my problem? Why do I have to bear the cost? First of all, let me just pause here, Mark, because this is a really important question. I want to answer it right. The incremental cost of the energy transition is something that, one, we have to minimize, and two, we have obviously to make sure that it is distributed in as socially responsible way as possible. And I think we're going to have to be very careful, particularly for certain consumers who are probably the least privileged and to make sure that we have the right tariffs for these people. And I think working closely with the government on this is going to be very important. Every government in Europe is obviously thinking about that. And we do have a lot of constructive dialogue with the governments to try and help find solutions as well, of course, as our consumers. But it is a very important concern. But of course, you know, the other side of the coin is the cost of not doing the energy transition. Every summer we are reminded, every winter we're reminded of extreme weather events. And I don't want to go through the list of things that we are seeing more and more. So it's also the cost of not doing the energy transition that also we have to be fully aware of. You're giving an important reminder to those of us who see the transition to the low carbon economy coming that how it affects the dispossessed, the poor is a critical part of our mission, has to be a critical part of a just transition, because otherwise that transition will not happen. Let's talk about the transition itself. NG today has a broad energy mix that includes coal. And this comes under typically the category of stranded assets is the industry term for this. And it means technologies that maybe you wouldn't build today, but you own them. How do you think about coal and how you will actually manage your coal plants over time. So today, our coal production represents less than 3% of our whole portfolio. So it's less than 3 gigawatts. And actually, we made some progress in 2021 on our coal exit plan. We have a coal exit plan. We are determined to exit coal. 2025 in Europe, 2027 for the rest of the world. And we will deliver on this plan for sure. Now, of course, and I know where you're going, <laughs> In an ideal world, we would close every one of these plants. Now, in the spirit of the just transition that you mentioned, Mark, 
Sometimes we are not able to do so. And in these cases, we will be working with the stakeholders to, as much as possible, convert these coal plants to either gas or biomass or something else. And as a last resort, we will obviously sell it. And when we sell it, obviously not good for the planet, except that for us, it does free investment capabilities to go into obviously renewables, etc. The reason why sometimes we can't stop or convert the plant, it is because it is an absolute essential part of the region where this plant is located, either socially and or economically, often it's a combination of jobs and also, of course, security of supply. And so we don't always have all the levers as an industrial player. In this transition, what is the biggest technical or business problem that you see in the businesses and countries in which you operate to successfully making this transition? I think one of the biggest challenge is probably the speed at which we can collectively make the revolution that we need in our energy mix. The sense of urgency that is there to translate that into real projects, I think that's a challenge. It's an opportunity, but it is a challenge. In the countries where we work in Western Europe, bureaucracy, social acceptance, permitting, sometimes really get in the way of this project to happen at pace. And so for me, it's really the pace of the project, which is something I have in mind, which concerns me. Talk a little bit about the permitting challenge, the regulatory challenge, because I think many people don't appreciate that this is the biggest barrier to bringing renewables online. For example, offshore wind in the United States is the simple permitting, the legal authorization to build. It is a combination of bureaucratic and also social acceptability, depending on the parts of the world. And so I think collectively, policymakers, regulators, also local authorities, but I would say almost citizens, we should try and converge more on the urgency that there is to develop a huge amount of renewable capacity in order to accelerate this energy transition. For me, that's really the key thing, is the pace. So pick up the pace and make it smoother and quicker to put up the technologies and businesses that will actually allow us to decarbonize. Absolutely. Pick up the pace. Let's talk about this chicken and egg problem you've mentioned before. What is that problem from your perspective? Chicken and egg, it's quite typical on hydrogen where you want to produce hydrogen in certain quantities. So you want to develop a big project to produce hydrogen, but you need customers. You need people who are going to buy your hydrogen. The only thing is that today you have two problems. Either you have a client who already uses hydrogen, but he uses hydrogen, which is very cheap. So he's going to say, well, actually, I will buy your green hydrogen, but it needs to be at the same price as my gray hydrogen. So here already you have a bit of a discussion. And then you have another type of clients that say, yes, I will need your hydrogen, but I need first to spend 1 billion euros to change my process because right now I have a furnace and I need to move to a DRI process. And this is going to cost me whatever, 1 billion. Bear with me. So that's a little bit some of the chicken and egg problems, I think illustrated with my simple example, of course, I'm simplifying for the sake of a discussion, but it's really about I need clients in order to invest in my production facility. And of course, these clients are waiting for me to start producing at high enough volume that I can get the cost down. 
simplified a bit, but that's what we mean by chicken and egg. Early on, you talked about stakeholders in society that you work with. Your corporate structure encourages that because half your board represents either employees or the French government in one way or another. How do you think about stakeholder capitalism? What does it give you as an advantage and where is it a constraint relative to simply focusing on shareholders? Well, I think a lot about this. Engie has a tradition of local anchorage and ability to manage local stakeholders, which I think today is turning to actually a competitive advantage. I have this conviction. Ability to have strong social dialogue, ability to engage local citizens, elected partners, local company, local suppliers, in order to move on with our projects, get them accepted, de-risk projects to a very large extent. And I think this is a bit of something we have at NG, which is quite special, quite differentiating. And I feel it's really giving us an edge in a world where that aspect of doing business is more and more important. You're about a year into your role as leader of NG. What are your priorities for the next year? All right. Priorities for NG for 2022 is Clearly around execution, we are on a path. We want to grow on the renewable front, renewable electricity, renewable gas, renewable heat even. We want to continue to partner with our clients to help them decarbonize their operations. And we have a lot of expertise, a lot of solutions to bring to the table to help them do that. We want to continue to work on the performance, operational performance, but also a functional performance. We have a bit of work to do there. And the last point is that I want to continue to work with the NG teams on the culture of NG for tomorrow. Where can the finance sector contribute the most to helping you and other of your peers decarbonize your businesses and ultimately the real economy? I think, Mark, there is already a lot of focus on renewables. I think probably sectors that still need attention is hydrogen and any low-carbon gas development. I think finance sectors should really look at those sectors because they're going to be very, very important for this energy transition to be successful. Last question. What do you think is the single most important thing that needs to happen to get the world to net zero? Cheap green hydrogen. I think if we get that, we'll be in good shape. Catherine McGregor, CEO of NG, thank you for joining us here on The Bid. Thank you very much, Mark, for having me today. This information is for informational purposes only and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecasts made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. The information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions.
The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. BlackRock does and may seek to do business with companies covered in this podcast. As a result, listeners should be aware that the firm may have a conflict of interest that could affect the objectivity of this podcast. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K. and non-European economic area, EEA, countries, this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management, U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office, 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N, 2DL. Telephone, plus 44-020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 02020394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. Please refer to the Financial Conduct Authority website for a list of authorized activities conducted by BlackRock. In the European Economic Area, EEA, this is issued by BlackRock Netherlands BV, is authorized and regulated by the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets. Registered Office, Amstelplein 1, 1096 HA, Amsterdam. Telephone, 020-549-5200. Telephone, 3120-549-5200. Trade Register Number, 1706-8311. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. For investors in Switzerland, this is marketing material. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited. Company registration number 2000101433N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited ABN 130061659750 AFSL. 230-523-BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. Before making any investment decision, you should assess whether the material is appropriate for you and obtain financial advice tailored to you having regard to your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, and circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund, nor shall any shares be offered or sold to anyone in any jurisdiction in which an offer, solicitation, purchase, or sale would be unlawful under the securities law of that jurisdiction. If any funds are mentioned or inferred to in this material, it is possible that some or all of the funds may not have been registered with the securities regulator of Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Peru, Uruguay, or any other securities regulator in any Latin American country, and thus may not be publicly offered within any such country. The securities regulators of such countries have not confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the investment services guide available at www.blackrock.com forward slash MX. Copyright 2021, BlackRock Incorporated. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Incorporated. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.